And whenever Josh invited me to teach uh, a while back on Palm Sunday, I thought, oh, this will be interesting, because last year I got to teach on Palm Sunday, and I kind of thought I was maybe a one-dimensional teacher. What else can I pull from this passage? But it's been so fun thinking about it. I don't consider myself a teacher by nature, but I am passionate about leadership, and I just saw so much leadership all over Mark 11 that we'll be taking a look at today. So it's going to be fun. I hope you guys are ready, and I just want to say in advance, based upon the last couple services and some cool stories I've heard, I believe some of you here this morning, God's going to help you move some mountains in your life. Some of you who are struggling with forgiveness, God can help you do that today. So I want to just invite you to be open to that, okay? Now, before we dive in too much, let's take a moment and welcome all those who are attending online with us, all right? So it's Palm Sunday, and I want to talk about disappointment and unmet expectations. Has anyone ever been disappointed before? Thank you for those of you who are honestly raising your hand. I want to share with you about a time I was disappointed. We're going to go back to the late 1980s when some of you weren't even yet conceived, I understand. So just imagine with me, the late 80s, uh, I was little Dana McCallion. I was probably around eight or so. And every year over Memorial Day weekend, my family would go to Daytona Beach. We'd make the drive from northern Indiana down to Daytona Beach for a week. And have you ever had that experience when you're um, vacationing somewhere and someone approaches you with a flyer and says, oh, if you'll give us a couple hours of your precious vacation time, we've got something for you, right? You know what I'm talking about? The opportunity to, to invest in a timeshare? Okay, all right. So you're, you're tracking with me. These things existed decades ago, too, for all you young people. So my family decided, okay, we'll go to this um, little timeshare presentation, give up a couple hours for it. I happen to be very excited about it because I've sensed being very optimistic, occasionally overly optimistic, that investing those couple of hours that I could have been at the pool with my cousins and my sister was going to pay off really well. And I'll tell you why. On that flyer, it said you could choose from a variety of prizes. And I read Nintendo on there, okay? Now, I'm not a gamer. I am raising one. But when I was eight, I wanted a Nintendo game system. Do you know what I'm talking about? They were like this big. They were gray. There were these big clunky things that said Nintendo in red on the front. I wanted to play Super Mario Brothers. I wanted to do Duck Hunt. Do you guys remember Duck Hunt? I would like take the little gun right up to the TV to make sure I got it just right every time, you know? I desperately wanted that. So we sat through the presentation. My parents decided they weren't going to go um, for that timeshare. And so we didn't really meet the expectations of the salesman. However, because we sat through it, he had to meet his end of the bargain. And he brings out this little blue handheld kind of console game. This was the Nintendo, you guys. If it, I mean, it was... A piece of junk <laughs> compared to what I was expecting, okay? Like my idea was just this great big grandiose, I'm going to have to take this giant game system home with me, is what I was thinking. No, that's not at all what it was. I think it had like two, it was blue and it had two red buttons on it that maybe was like up and down or A and B or something. It did nothing. The display was so bad, it, it like it started pixelating and ran out after a few months, all right? If you can't tell how disappointed I am, I'm 
not communicating well, okay? <laughs> and I think we all experience those things where we go into a situation or a relationship, a job, you name it, where we have something in mind of what it's going to be and it turned out to be something different. What's interesting is we're going to be talking about the triumphal entry today in Mark 11, and that's what we call, in church, that's what we call a time when Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem, okay? We're going to be looking at that passage of the triumphal entry, and we'll be talking about the unmet expectations, the two different ideas that were happening on the road that day in Mark 11 between the plan that Jesus had to fulfill for his father, God, and the plan that the people in Jerusalem wanted him to carry out and who they wanted him to be for them and in their lives. So before we take a look at the passage, I would like to pray. If you join me in prayer, please. God, I thank you that the sun is out this morning, that you are melting the ice on our Mercy Road signs in our front yards, inviting people to Easter. God, I thank you that uh, we get to celebrate Palm Sunday in freedom to study your word together from around our community to learn to be more like you, Jesus. And so as I share this morning, I just ask that you would empty me of myself, that you would fill me with your spirit, God. Give me the right words to um, teach your word appropriately. And I just ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to listen and learn and to obey you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said... Amen. Okay, we're going to take a look at Mark chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. So when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Okay, we're going to take a break there in the passage. We'll get through all 25 verses here this morning, but I want to take a break and just point out what's happening here. Jesus gets on that colt. Um, the word in the original language is actually polos, P-O-L-O-S, which means a little donkey or a small horse. And I'm a very visual person, so I'm going to ask all of you guys, do we have any Parks and Rec fans out here? Right? Based in the great state of Indiana? Come on. Okay, so when you think of a polos or a small donkey or a little horse, if you're a Parks and Rec fan, what are you thinking of? Little Sebastian, right. So this is the visual I want you to have, not to poke fun at at scripture, but to recognize how humble the entrance Jesus made into Jerusalem truly was. This was not what you would expect, okay? This is a little horse, and I'm telling you as a person with short legs, this donkey had short legs. He was not like running and traipsing in. It was probably a slow journey. Probably wasn't as majestic as we would expect. And I would even wonder, because sometimes I get carried away with my imagination as I was envisioning this, preparing for the message, there's a chance that Jesus, his feet were like almost dragging the ground, right? 
I mean, think about it. He didn't even need the cult, but it's such a symbol of humility. It's such a symbol of what we don't expect from a king. He could have walked in there. He could have run in there. He could have, um, you know, often we'll see in politics um, or in, in other arenas, even in a lot of religious arenas, we'll see someone lifted up high, right? Um, when, they're, when they're speaking or when they're being carried into town. And that's not what Christ came to do. And I think it's a great visual example for us um, because he... He is humble. Jesus is meek. He's very understated. And he's actually fulfilling a prophecy that if they'd really thought about it in the moment, they might have remembered from the Old Testament. In Zechariah 9, it's the coming of Zion's king. I'll read this little verse for you here. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this moment was actually prophesied in the Old Testament, but the crowd's expectations were different, what they wanted from the Messiah and who they wanted Jesus to be. And so now we've talked about that humble entry on a colt, but we also need to talk about Jesus' entourage. If you think of someone in authority or maybe even someone famous that maybe we celebrate in culture, They have an entourage, right? You've got to have an entourage. (laughs) And the entourage could be security people. Um, They could be um, other famous people who kind of hang out together and support each other and make each other look great. I don't know. But Jesus didn't have that. He could have had soldiers with him dressed, you know, in armor. It could have been this um, sort of, when we talk about the triumphal entry, you understand it's a juxtaposition of words. It's almost tongue-in-cheek because it wasn't triumphal compared to what man would think. Jesus probably came into Jerusalem with his disciples, um, people that he had healed, a former prostitute, probably some former lepers, tax collector, fishermen, not exactly what we would think of, of kingly behavior. And so while he's doing these kingly things, he does have sort of an entourage, not what we would expect. And he is in a parade, even though it's not really exactly what we would expect. He's pointing out to us what I think is an incredible leadership example. Now, I'm really passionate about leadership. I believe leadership is a spiritual gift. Maybe not everyone has it, but we all have influence. Are you with me? We all have an opportunity to lead others by example. So, our example is Christ and his leadership. So whether you're um, you know, a CEO starting a nonprofit, staying at home, a student in the local high school, middle school, elementary school, you have influence whether you choose to accept that or not. And with the example we have, if we follow Jesus, our ability to lead is dramatically changed. It looks different because I'm going to show you that he leads in a very unique way like no one ever did before him and like no one ever could following his time on earth. So Jesus combines majesty and meekness. He combines authority with humility. And Jesus also combines power with vulnerability. And these are things that we like to think of as being on two totally different ends of the spectrum, but not with Christ. Not with Christ. He is both. Our God that we serve is a both and God. It's like peanut butter and cereal. Anyone? No one. Okay. So um, my husband, when I met him 20 years ago, 
is he's one of those. Are any of you like cereal lovers? You can eat it for dinner. You can eat it for lunch all the time. I'm married to one of those. Okay, and he's great, but I, didn't, I wasn't aware these people existed. So he's, he's uh, one of those, and whatever that is. And so if you're in our house, in our pantry, we've got cereal over here, and there's, you know, like a jar of peanut butter. He said to me, he's like, oh my gosh, you gotta have a scoop of peanut butter and put it in your cereal, it's so good. And I'm like, no, those are two different ends of the spectrum for me. You got your peanut butter over here and you got your cereal over here, you don't mix them. But being the submissive wife that I am, I chose to try it, right? And I actually really like it. <laughs> so I challenge you guys, to, don't let that be your takeaway from the message. Let it be a, you know, a secondary takeaway. But I do challenge you to try it if you want to. And think of me. If you don't like it, tell Chris. It's okay. But I think it's so funny because when we have these preconceived notions of what a leader looks like, right? We have these preconceived ideas of, oh, these two character traits can't go together. We wouldn't expect this from Jesus, and we sure aren't going to behave that way ourselves. But I think Jesus proves in the triumphal entry with the entourage that he chose and writing in on little Sebastian that he is not looking to be considered only all-powerful, that he is powerful and meek both at once. And some authors say that um, Jesus is meek and mild. Do you remember that? I grew up in elementary school, or excuse me, in Sunday school in a little small town in northern Indiana. And I remember learning about Um, Jesus on the flannel graph board and how he's so sweet and kind and he turns the other cheek and all of those things. And that's true. It says that in scripture. But I read one author's take on it and he said, Jesus isn't just meek and mild. And again, this is the two ends of the spectrum. Jesus is meek and wild. And I love that idea because as much as I like um, to know what to expect, I also really appreciate the fact that our Jesus is our, as a leader, he is one that leads us into adventure, and that is wild. And that's why we see things that we don't expect from him, and we have unmet expectations in our lives. Let's pick it up again in verse 8 in Mark chapter 11, if you're following along. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they'd cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So we see in this passage that Jesus comes into town and he goes, he's going straight to the temple, but the people have gone home for the night. So what happens here is the story continues, but you've got to hang in there because it gets a little um, strange before we get back into the rest of the story. And I think you'll find this interesting because we go straight from Jesus coming into Jerusalem to the temple to this story we're going to share now, these, these couple verses about a fig tree. And a lot of people, when they read it at face value, tend to think, like I have when I've read it, what is this doing in there? And I think you'll enjoy as we unpack this a little bit. Let's continue in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. But he, when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So Jesus sees the fig tree. It's not the season for figs. And naturally, there aren't any figs, right? Because that's not the season for it. Well, this upsets Jesus, and he curses the tree. 
Well, on the surface, this doesn't seem like the behavior of this leader we've been discussing, right? This, this gracious, reasonable person. It might even seem out of character for Jesus, but it's not. And part of his, um, his great leadership is that he saw an opportunity with the disciples to provide an object lesson. Um, if you're a parent, you love it when something comes up that you can point to as an object lesson to your kids, right? So they're not just hearing mom say it, but it's like, see, I told you, this is what I'm trying to point out to you. Here's a visual example of what we've been talking about all this time. That's what Jesus does here. And as you think about it, this, the, the, the reason it's written in the gospel this way is because Mark wrote this gospel, and I, I learned that Mark has a type of writing that he does a couple times in this gospel called a Markin sandwich. So any proper sandwich has two slices of bread, right, with some meat in the middle. So what Mark does when he shares some of these stories as he encountered them is he takes one story as he encountered Jesus, and that's one slice of bread, in this case, it's going to be, you know, the story about Jesus coming in, the triumphal entry. The other slice of bread of this Mark and sandwich is what we're looking at here in a moment, what happened in the temple. But the meat of this Mark and sandwich is actually this little story that's just a couple verses about the fig tree. That's the object lesson that we're going to take a look at. Let's continue with verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Okay, so this is the passage that's the other slice of bread in that Mark and sandwich, Jesus going into the temple. Um, if you were there at the time, if you and I were there, when you enter the temple, you would have entered in the court of Gentiles or the court of nations. It was the only place where the non-Jews could go. And it's not just any room. It was very large. It was 36 acres in size. It's been said that um, during the week of Passover, over 225,000 lambs could have been sold there. So when we're talking about a room that size and you've got the people who are not Jewish who are trying to connect to God, to worship, to pray, and they're in the same room as hundreds, potentially thousands of tables, it'd be like being in this massive garage sale trying to connect with God, not having another place in the temple you can go, and realizing that, um, as one person explained it, it would be like being in the New York Stock Exchange like walking straight into it, the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and then just dumping a bunch of animals on top of it, okay? Utter chaos. And this upset Jesus. That's why he started flipping those tables. It says um, in the Gospel of John that he made a whip. So when we're recognizing Jesus' reaction to this, it's because he's saying this isn't what the temple's meant to be like. He goes a little bit wild, that's when he says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And he's, he's upset with the religious establishment because he's coming to do something they weren't expecting. They thought Jesus would come and drive out foreigners. That's not it at all. Jesus was coming saying, you're making it hard for them to get in to connect with God because of all this religious activity going on around here, okay? Literally what was happening there 
is kind of the opposite of what our motto that we try to embody here at Mercy Road is, and that is that they were making the temple a museum for saints and not a hospital for sinners, okay? They were making the temple a museum for saints and not a hospital for sinners. Um, so he, first of all, he wasn't indicating he was going to purge the culture of foreigners. They were also upset because he was implying that he was going to throw out the sacrificial system, which you and I know, because we have the privilege of reading ahead in the story, that he did do that. You know, I mentioned that there were 225,000 lambs potentially sold every, you know, during the Passover. That was because the Old Testament custom was to kill lambs in place for sin. We know that another name for Jesus is the Lamb of God, capital L, right? He is our sacrificial lamb because just a few days after this happened in the temple, he was crucified. He died. He was dead for three days. And then he rose from the grave, defeated death. And that resurrection covers our sin for eternity. So Jesus came to die. And I think it's interesting to point out that this story is the other side of that Markin sandwich. And we probably want to know, what on earth does that have to do with a fig tree? Well, if you're ready for a little horticulture lesson before lunch, listen up. I found this really fascinating. Middle Eastern fig trees bear two kinds of fruit. Middle Eastern fig trees bear two kinds of fruit. So there were leaves on this tree but there were no nodules yet. There was no fruit because as it said in scripture, it wasn't time for it to bear fruit, but there were no nodules. Now nodules are these little bitty nodules that are formed on the fig leaf tree as it's getting ready to bear fruit. It's an indicator that fruit is coming and they're also edible. So Jesus and his disciples could have stopped and pulled some of those off and eaten them along the way, okay? There were none on this tree. So what was happening there was the object lesson that Jesus wanted the disciples to understand, and that is that growth without fruit is a sign of decay. Growth without fruit is a sign of decay. So if you and I imagine ourselves as fig trees, we might be looking healthy on the outside, but there's no fruit. And it's actually a sign of decay, which means there's something wrong inside of us. We need to be at the hospital for sinners. We need Christ to change. And so really, the fig tree is a visual aid. It's kind of a mini parable about hollow religiosity, that we can appear to be following Christ, which unfortunately is a very common thing this time of year when we're celebrating Easter. We might check the box of going to church, and you get twice the credit because you came on Palm Sunday, right? You came a week early, you guys. Good job, right? Well, with hollow religiosity, we focus on those things, and we forget about our personal relationship with Christ. So if you follow Jesus... You have a job to do. I have a job to do. We're called to make disciples. So I want to ask you a question that I have to ask myself. Are we so busy with religious activity that we miss out on authentic faith? That's a challenge to each of us as we think about this Easter week. Are we so focused on the religious part and the tradition and culture that we're missing out on authentic faith? Let's take a look at verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Jesus answered, have faith in God. So he's explaining the purpose of the fig tree and why it was so important. 
But I think there's a couple of other things about this Mark and sandwich, these three pieces of the passage together that I want to pull away that are kind of some big picture ideas we can take home today. The first point is following Jesus is about authentic faith and not religious busyness. He's not so concerned about our sacrifices as our relationship and obedience to him. And so, you know, we heard Jesus say, you've become a den of robbers. And he's really pointing out uh, what we read about later in scripture, that even the temple, which was a place of um, just religious activity, he himself has become the temple. He is our connecting point. And we gather in church and celebrate him together. He's our focus of worship. And, you know, I realized as I was preparing for this message, I think it's so easy for me to stop and think about all the things I'm excited about. I'm excited about... Um, our outside the walls projects. I'm excited about campusing. I'm excited about, you know, personally, my husband and I are trying to plan a trip together and all these things that I think about doing, which are not bad things, they're good things, but I'm not thinking always about who I'm becoming. And I think that's a question we have to ask ourselves. You know, who are we becoming? Are we producing fruit? And it's not about only having faith or only having works, but it's about producing fruit by not having hollow religiosity, by letting God show us what he wants to do in us and through us. And the beautiful thing, because God is such a great leader, is that he is clear about how we produce fruit. You can see that in the last part of this passage. We'll take a look at verse 23 through 25, and you'll see that for yourself. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Well, there you have it. We want to live lives that exemplify we truly believe God can do the impossible, and we want to be forgiving people because of the forgiveness we've received. Now, one important thing I have to point out about that passage is it would be easy to read it at face value and think, great, this is proving that God's a genie in a bottle. I'm going to go ask for this, and he's going to give me that. That's actually not biblical at all. What he is is we have a personal relationship with him through Christ, And because of that, he can start putting his desires in our heart. And we start wanting to do the things that he invites us to do, that life of adventure, because he's both meek and wild. So given that, we want to believe, and we do believe, and we need help to believe even more that God can move immovable mountains, I want to ask you, what is the immovable mountain in your life? Does anyone have one of those? I have a couple of them. If you don't have any, I'm really surprised. (laughs) What is the immovable mountain in your life? And see, the problem with that is sometimes we're okay with an immovable mountain. Sometimes we start to enjoy the scenery of it. We become so accustomed to it being right there all the time. We think, oh, that mountain's just there. It's not going to change. God doesn't care about it. God can't change it. We start believing lies that are not true. So I want to ask you, Embrace that immovable mountain, trusting that through God's help, it can change. You know, I was praying about an immovable mountain in my life Thursday night, and I was up in the middle of the night, and God in his graciousness reminded me of this verse, Psalm 97, 5, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord. And I started visualizing as I was praying, God, I want you to melt this situation. And I do believe he's moving, even in ways that I can't yet see. 
And he will give you that kind of faith because that's what it takes to live a life that produces fruit. And the incredible thing is that as we start believing that in faith, we recognize that God is the source of all good things in our lives, even the things that don't meet our expectations. And especially when we trust that some of the things that he provides, his plan was better. Actually, all the things that God is providing me, his plan was way better than my imagination had. And I think it'd be really easy to end right now without looking at verse 25. None of us really likes verse 25 if we're honest about it. It's about forgiveness and about, you know, empty religiosity can be coming to the temple or coming in front of God or even coming to church on Palm Sunday and wanting to shut out the fact that we're hurt, that we have unforgiveness against someone. It's so easy to do. I've done it myself, friends. But God is saying if we want to bear fruit, if there's even going to be nodules in our lives that are an indicator of fruit to come, he's asked us to forgive. And like a good leader, he would never ask us to do anything he has not done himself. We sit here today because of the forgiveness he has given us. And I love that about Jesus because this passage ends with a challenge. I don't know about you, but um, I have no interest in giving time or money or effort or thought to a boring vision. Okay, life is too short. And that's why following Christ has radically changed me so much in the last 20 years because God is always calling me to more. He sees so much more in me than I see in myself and he does that for all of us. It's hard when he asks me to forgive, but it's so worth it because if he says it's possible and he does, it will happen. His way, better than my expectations, quite frankly. And because God is such a great leader, he understood his mission. And that's the last point I want you to take away today. Jesus' mission, truly, and he knew this as he was heading into Jerusalem, was to be destroyed so that we could be restored. So restoration for you and me today looks like forgiving. It looks like thinking the best of others, having their backs. And it looks like believing and asking that he will move those mountains in our lives that we've become accustomed to as just part of the scenery. So I'm going to ask Eric and the band to come in, and we're going to pray this morning. I believe some of you came here uh, ignoring maybe the mountains that are in your life. I tend to do that sometimes. Maybe you came in and you're hurt or you're frustrated and feel like you have a reason to not forgive. But our example is Christ. He is a mountain mover. Those mountains melt like wax before him. And our example in Christ is also one to forgive. He's forgiven us more than we could ever deserve.